the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It is a delight to bring back a good friend and colleague, Ed Morrissey. Ed Morrissey, among other things, is the managing editor at Hot Air, hotair.com. We serve together on the editorial board of Town Hall. Ed, welcome back. Thanks for being with us today, man. Hey, it's great talking with you. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Always, always. Uh, something I didn't do with you last time, and I usually do for my audience, um, because they follow a lot of our listeners on uh, Twix, formerly Twitter, some errantly calling X. We call it Twix around here. We just stop the nonsense and put the Twitter and X together <laughs> to get over this whole issue of Twitter, formerly known as X, which seems like that's going to go on forever. So on your Twix account, it says, uh, you are our favorite sweet summer child, undisputed grandmaster of the Sistine Selfie, Obviously, managing editor of Hot Air, that's self-explanatory, author of Going Red, great book, and is Gail Aguara me. Um, so we're going to have to ask you a few things here, brother. <laughs> okay. Lay it on me. People need to know who they're following. Your favorite sweet summer child. Is that anything you can talk about on radio? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I wrote something one time, and one of the people on, on Twitter called well, me a sweet summer child, which I found out. You know, I looked it up, and it turned out to be, you know, like you're naive or, you know, oh, really? um, okay. or easily easily duped. Oh, okay. And I thought it was such a great phrase. I told him, I said, I'm going to put that in my bio. Okay. <laughs> and he followed me after that because okay. he appreciated my sense of humor, and it's been in the bio ever since. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's what that's about. There's nothing, there's nothing more to it than that. All right. Undisputed grandmaster of the Sistine Selfie. So, I covered the uh, conclave in 2013, so it's almost exactly 11 years ago. This is about the time it was going on, right? And um, one of the things that I, and I was there as a member of the media, I was credentialed. I was part of the credentialed media. There was like 5,000 of us there. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the opportunities I got was to uh, go into the Sistine Chapel while they were preparing it for the conclave. And normally, if you're touring the... um, the, the Sistine Chapel, the lights are off to protect the artwork in there. The Michelangelo uh, that kind use, of stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all very delicate, yeah. right? Yeah. And you're not allowed to uh, use photography. Even non-flash photography on the tour, they just don't want you doing it because people screw up and they they leave their flash on. And oh, so yeah. they just tell you not to do it. Okay. And so, um, but for this purpose, the media was allowed to photograph in there, as long as you didn't use a flash, the media was taken on tours and allowed to photograph in there. And I got in one of the, actually one of the first groups uh, to get in there, and I brought my camera. I originally started doing some video in there, and they asked me to stop. Uh-huh. Uh, and so after that, I just took some pictures. But while I was doing the video, I got a screen grab of me doing the video. Yeah. And so that was my legit Sistine selfie. And every once in a while, people say, you know, you were breaking the rules. It's like, no, actually, I was allowed to do that. I just wasn't allowed to do the video. How stands um, the church these 11 years in? 
I think that and it's I don't got mean a lot physically. of issues. I don't mean physically. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. I think it has some issues. Yeah. Um, I think that um, they have lost focus on uh, the actual doctrines and teachings of the church and have gotten somewhat woke. And I think that that's a problem. And I think we're seeing more of that recently. And that has become an even bigger problem uh, with fiducia supplicans, which um, I guess allowed uh, priests to bless same-sex couples uh, as long as it was under the understanding that they weren't blessing the relationship. But, I mean, that's a pretty... That's a pretty fine hair to split. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people, especially the African bishops, are not interested in splitting that that hair and are very vocal about the fact that they are unhappy with this teaching. And they've had to actually clarify it once, which is unusual for this type of uh, declaration. I, I think that they're losing the thread and l- losing focus on what the real risks to the Church are. And, you know, I say that as a sinner, you know, I'm... Just like everybody else, I'm a sinner. So you know, I mean, I'm not here to say I'm holier than now, but I think that they're going in the wrong direction, and they need to course correct here soon. I originally called you to talk about what you were breaking over on hot air about Fannie Willis in the case there, and I would like to get to it with your indulgence, though. Can I stay on this for a few minutes? Do you mind? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, because I was talking about this earlier earlier in the week, um, and I'm trying to remember exactly what brought it on something in a monologue I delivered earlier, and we were talking about religion in America, we were talking about marriage in America, and we were talking about um, how the left kind of ruins everything, uh, an old Dennis Prager line, but including, you know, almost every institution. I think what I, okay, I think what started me on this, Ed, trip down memory lane, I think what started me on this was an old Crocker Bank commercial in California from, from 1969, which was played to the tune of We've Only Just Begun, later made yeah. famous by the Carpenters. And yes, if I remember you watch, the commercial. Yeah, if you watch the commercial, you can get it on YouTube. It begins with a young couple being married in a church by a priest with a collar. And them walking out, and you can see the bank connection helping them finance their first house. We've only just begun. All very clever. And I was remarking you would not see that ad today. You would not see an ad of a couple being married. I don't think any way it would be, if you did, it would be a um, a male and female. And I don't think you'd see a priest. And I don't know that you'd see a church. I just don't think you would see that. And I was um, remarking that. You just think about, you know, the kinds of things that would have not raised an eyebrow in our lifetime. We're both around the same age. That would have been in our lifetime. We would have been young, but it wouldn't have raised an eyebrow in an ad like that. Today it would, in part because I don't think it would or could get made. And you think about religion itself, Ed, in this country. Last year I saw a statistic. I think it's perhaps one of the top five most important statistics in the country. You and I may have discussed it on one of our town hall meetings editorial board meetings, but more people have left the church in the last 30 years than joined in the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and every Billy Graham revival crusade combined. That's an oddly different and new world here, isn't it? It, Well, it really is. I mean, it goes to the secularization of of culture, and not just secularization, I mean, because we've always had a secular context and a you know, faith-based context, even even in the United States, right? Yep. Um, 
And there was always at least some respect between the two. Yep. But that has gone away. Right. And what you're finding now is that one side wants to relentlessly secularize everything. And uh, what's, a, what's a good way of putting this? Basically, pen up any sort of faith-based approach uh, in a sort of dungeon <laughs> where yeah. you can never get out and, yeah. can, and people don't have to be exposed to that. I mean, and it's silly. Uh, you know, it's it's. They don't want us seen. They don't want us to exist. From a movement that all it yes. ever wanted up until about twenty years ago was just that. All all we want to do is live side by side. All we want, right? Well, I mean, it depends on what part of the, the movement and which movement you're talking okay. about. Okay. I think. Okay. I, I mean, I think that there are um, well-meaning lesbians and gays who that's really all they ever wanted, right? right? Just right. to just to be respected until right. you know they have the space to do what they want to right. do. Right. Um, and we disagree on marriage, but, you know, for the most part, I'm not illegalizing the practice. An old Bowers v. Hardwick case should have, yeah, okay, I'm with you. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, but for the most part, I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, live and let live kind of guy. If that's what you want to do, and as long as you're both consenting adults, it's really not my business in terms of public policy Mm -hmm. to intervene in Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think marriage is public policy, and that, I think, was an issue. Mm-hmm. But we've lost that one, and it's time to move on and, and talk about other things. But there's radical extremists that want to go much farther than that, and I don't necessarily think it's, it's about that particular area of public policy. I, I think either. it is a—I think they use it as a wedge yep. to get in um, an extreme Marxist point of view yep. to, to completely deconstruct— um, American life, and especially faith. And, and the church is usually one of the first big targets of the Marxists. It happens every single time. You know, we, there's not enough people that know about the story of, you know, the, um, uh, of the uh, Mexican Revolution and how they tried to shut down the churches mm-hmm. in Mexico in the first part of uh, the last century. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a really good movie called For Greater Glory with um, Andy Garcia yes, that told that story. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it's and it really kind of was, it ended up as sort of a draw. Can I can I uh, take a quick commercial break on that point yeah. and just come back on? It? You don't mind spending a little time on this, do you? Absolutely not. We call these things the Durbles, the Fannie Willis case. It'll come and go. Cases like that, but these issues we kind of focus on are uh, we call them the Durbles here. They're a little more important. So Ed Morrissey, thank you for your indulgence. By the way, I want to come back on that word indulgence too. Uh, given kind of the trajectory of what you're describing and what took place with the Dodgers last year. Uh, Ed Morrissey from Hot Air is my guest. We'll both be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals, trusted source for a lot of keen insight, is Ed Morrissey, uh, managing editor at Hot Air, hotair.com. The website with great news and analysis. We're doing a little bit of a cultural thing. We kind of stumbled our way into um, Ed. The um, how do I put it? The change, I suppose, the flow, the direction of um, the secularization. I think that was the way you put it uh, of our society. It's it's gone from beyond secularization to kind of a a hardened or an adamantine demand set of demands to plow down all traditional mores and norms, many of which one gets from religion, although one doesn't have to. So, for example, we saw Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Um, It had nothing to do with gay marriage, by the way. It had to do with everything else. Um, 
to the south or left of it or whatever you want to call it. The Dodgers were smart enough to say, mm, maybe we erred here. Let, let's, not, let's not be doing this. But boy, they got such pushback, they ultimately had to yield to this nonsense. Indulgence, by the way, <laughs> means, um, uh, how, how should we put this? It, it means um, no, no responsibility for sin. Basically, they were nuns. It was a nunnery dedicated to sinning that had to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it actually doesn't even mean that. It means basically um, a forgiveness for the um, spiritual penalties okay. of okay. sin. Okay. okay, Right? I mean, you're still on the hook for the sin. I always so tread diffidently on these issues with an English. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, so go ahead. It's a really technical <laughs> term. And the reason why it's important is because it became a huge issue uh, in the uh, Protestant... Um, Reformation, right? right because right. you had the sale of indulgences, right. which was, it wasn't the indulgences themselves, right. it was the sale of <laughs> right. indulgences um, that was pointed at as part of the corruption of the Church. Right. And yeah, I mean, yes it was. Right. I mean, there's, I, and I'm Catholic, and, and I mean, there was a lot of corruption in the Church, and it needed to be reformed. There was a counter-reformation that took place after the Protestant Reformation, where most of that was eliminated. Um, but... Um, yeah, the term indulgence is is really a technical thing. You can still get indulgences, but you don't you don't buy yeah, them. Not for the you know, price of what? If you, if you do a yeah, particular right. set of prayers, right. there's an indulgence that goes along right. with it, and that sort of thing. So, yes, it's it's. But part but it of it was a nunnery dedicated to sin. That's what we're talking. I mean, that's, right. right. Part of that indulgence is to express sorrow for your right. sin, right. not to perpetuate it, not not, not to perpetuate it. Right. right. So right. the sisters of perpetual indulgence. Right. Right. I mean, it's really a bigoted anti-Catholic group mm-hmm. that loves to demonstrate against Catholics, that loves to p- poke fun at everything that we hold sacred as Catholics. And, you anyway, know, they do this constantly. Uh, and so when the Dodgers decided that they were going to honor them for their community involvement, right. I, I, we were outraged. I, I'm, I was a lifelong Dodger fan. Yeah. I used to bleed Dodger mm-hmm. blue, and I just simply have no interest in the team any longer. It's See, not the same team as it was when I was... And, it's I was not, and, and I guess that piggybacks on the point that it's not the same Catholic Church either, perhaps. Well, it's, I mean, you know, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, it's... The Catholic not Church that the sister... I'm not saying that this... And, right, I'm not... Right, okay. I'm yeah, not I mean, saying that the And in other ways, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's... Uh, the, the doctrine is constant. It's the practices sometimes okay. that, uh, that uh, drive us a little crazy in the, in the Catholic Church and, and lead to lots of debate. And uh, that's what's going on now. See what one picture, one selfie at the Sistine Chapel will do? But let me stay with it. Just <laughs> Let me just chase this a little further into the political realm, because it is interesting to me. I'm looking at how the Democrats are trying to campaign right now, and we can talk about some of that, too. But one of the things that uh, one of the phrases you're now beginning to see or see revived, I suppose, is that the American right, the conservative movement, the Republican Party, is now a party of Christian nationalism. Christian national it used to be white nationalism. That wasn't good enough, I suppose, or maybe they leave the racialization of it to half their movement and now the, the, the uh, theocraticalization of it to another part. But that's what was on, in, on MSNBC all day today, Christian nationalism and the threat it presents. And they had this reporter from MSNBC. I don't know if you saw this. I can't pronounce her last name. I think it might be of Polish origin. But she is talking about the definition of Christian nationalism is those who believe our rights don't come from the court or the law, but God. That's her definition of it. Yeah, 
uh, David Strom wrote about that today. Okay. Um, okay. And I, if I recall correctly, the headline was, has this reporter never read the Declaration of Independence? Good. Now, this, I mean, this is one of those narratives that you could see coming from across the valley, right? It's yeah. like, if you're in the desert, well, you're in Arizona, you're in the desert. Yeah, sure. When you have a storm that's coming through, right, yeah. you can see it miles off, and yep. it's beautiful. I used to love that when yep. I would hang out in the desert, and you see these rainstorms that would just kind of roll across the desert. You could see it coming a mile off, and yep. it was really cool. Yep. Well, media narratives, like, <laughs> <laughs> the same Nice thing. work, good work. Good you work. can see yep. them coming a mile away. And this one was very easy to spot. They, you know, the ultra MAGA thing had played out. They needed something new. Now it's Christian nationalism. And this, the first I saw of this as a media narrative was at Politico. Yeah. And I kid you not, Seth, they they were very concerned that Christian national extremist policies would get put in place, like forcing fathers to pay um, support for children. <laughs> that's a Christian notion to them? I mean, that's, that's a theocratic... That's Christian nationalist oh, okay. notion to them. Okay. Child support. Mm-hmm. I know. Now, you mentioned the, the Crocker Bank ad. Crocker yeah. was actually the first bank I ever had. Oh, oh, and, oh okay. Oh, fun. And, okay. and, and I, I mean, I was young when that ad ran, but I do remember when oh, it ran. Oh, you do? Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, was, I was a young dude, but I do remember that ad. And, um, and, and so... Uh, you know, the, the um, even at that point in time, they were talking about deadbeat dads. Yeah, because it had become a huge social issue. You know, when the breakdown of the family you occurred, bet. you had a lot of fathers that were skipping out on support, and yep. the kids were ending up on welfare. Yep. And in California and elsewhere, you know, I grew up in California. There was a uh, there was a political mo- political movement, kind of driven by feminists, not really by Christian nationalists, but more by feminists to force government to force fathers to pay their support. I remember and so that they would, movement. I remember yeah, it across they, the country, or maybe it yeah, started in California. They would but, garnish yeah, wages, they that. would yep. impose tax penalties, mm-hmm. they would put them in jail. Yeah, I think in Arizona the movement was to publicize their faces. Yeah, I, 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 I do sort of recall that, too. Yeah. You know, put the faces of the deadbeat dads mm-hmm. in the local yeah. newspapers yeah, yeah, and shame yeah. them into paying, their yeah. Pay, yeah. paying up. Yeah. So, I mean... That was one thing. What was the other thing? Um, it, it was the natural rights argument, yeah. which is what you were getting to, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Which was that you know one sign of Christian nationalism is, is exactly belief in the Declaration this. of Independence and securing right. the blessings of liberty that the Constitution ordains. By the way, interesting word. That well, that's what unalienable rights mean yeah. in the, in the, in the <laughs> Declaration of Independence. Yes. I mean, it says they they are bestowed on us by by the Creator. Yes. So this isn't. A Christian nationalist. No, it's Thomas concept. Jefferson. <laughs> it's, a found, yeah. it's Thomas Jefferson. It's a foundational American concept. Let me and let me take really a quick commercial break. This this big one. Let's let's pick up on it when we come back, if I can. I'm going to take a quick commercial break with Ed Morrissey before we go down um, that further exploration. He of HotAir.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Ed Morrissey is my guest. He's the managing editor at HotAir.com, one of these sites you want to be informed, you want to read every day, and they update it more than once a day. It's a great website, and you've done a great job with it, Ed. So congrats to you. Hats off to you for all Thank that. You, and you have a great team over there. You know what's interesting about this? Just, it doesn't take us anywhere, but it's a fun piece of trivia for me, and I know how much you like the culture because you said you remembered that Crocker Bank ad written by Paul Williams. Um, it's one of only two examples of an ad I know where the music 
for the commercial ad was so popular it later became a hit. Usually it goes the other way. Usually there's a hit that's adopted for a commercial. It was one of the only two I can think of that first started as a commercial piece of music that became so likable that it was, in this case, given to the Carpenters. The other yeah. one is uh, Teach the World to Sing. It was yeah. first a Coke commercial. Uh, it, it, was, it was almost the same time, yeah. right? Because right about. I'd like to teach the yeah. world to sing yeah. was, I think, 1970. Yeah, right around the same time. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that kind of fun? It is fun. It yeah, is. no, I love that trivia. I don't um, know any There other. probably have been others, but I couldn't tell you what they I were. don't know if there are. There, there might be. Um, we'll crowdsource it. You know, we'll know by Monday. <laughs> we'll know <laughs> <True>. by Monday. <laughs> um. I don't know if there was more to say about this point. Maybe there is. Joe Biden... Well, I mean, you know, he, so so yeah. about, the, about natural, yeah, about yeah, natural yeah, law, go ahead. natural rights, right? Yeah. I mean, the foundation of American, um, of American liberty is that uh, human beings have innate rights based on natural law. And the Constitution is not formed to grant rights, but it is formed to prevent government from infringing on those rights. And if you don't understand that process, then you can't understand American law, mm-hmm. because the constitutional, especially constitutional law, constitution, the Constitution exists to give specific powers to the federal government, and then it, it talks about all the things that the federal government cannot do, all the rights it cannot infringe on, and especially in the Bill of Rights, that's especially what the Bill of Rights is about. The whole Bill of Rights is about restraining the government from infringing on the natural law rights of every of, um, of every citizen of, of the United States. And um, and and so we who hold these have... truths to be self-evident the declaration are the same we the people of the United States that comes in 1787, right? I mean exactly. it's, the, it's 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 a smooth it's it's just okay, anyway. You take No, no, point. you're exactly right, Seth. It, it, it all flows it all flows That's together the word I and, and it flows, yeah. And and the Articles of Confederation which was the intermediate right. uh, organizing document for the federal government which didn't work uh, because the federal government couldn't actually didn't have any authority at all to do anything really under the Articles of Confederation, um, and they knew it wasn't working, so they knew that they needed a federal government that had some authority to govern. But the concern was that once you create a federal government, you're going to have a government that infringes on everybody's rights right. because it's going to necessarily be too powerful to restrain. And that's the reason why they wrote the Constitution in the way they did, to protect the natural law rights of American citizens. And by that, uh, secure the blessings of liberty for each and every one of us. And if you think that rights descend from the Constitution, you've gotten it entirely wrong, and you probably shouldn't be on anybody's platform talking about the uh, the nature of rights, even MSNBC. You probably should not go on MSNBC and talk about the nature of rights. I love how you did the natural law foundations of the Constitution. It took us as a movement a long time to begin to, and now fully embrace and adopt and appreciate that point. And I'm really glad you did that. Um, and the way you put it too, Ed. But I guess the other side of this, while a part of the left is going to want to blame the conser- or foist upon the American people the idea that Republicans are Christian extremists, uh, the other what the other side of this is, or the other hand, the far left hand is Joe Biden talking about us as racists. I don't know if you saw his talk at a private event. I mean, it was transcribed by the White House. But it was a, a fundraising event where he said today's Republican Party, today's Republican Party, is worse than the segregationism 
that uh, that was uh, represented by the the likes of Strom Thurmond back in the day. This this is an incredible thing, Ed. We're 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 religious extremists and we're racists. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I, I mean, I, I mean, if you're the again, if you're the mainstream media, these are the narratives you're going to get. No, I'm not. I'm not agreeing. I, with that. I'm just saying. But no, I'm aware that that's what the argument's going to be. But that's an old argument, right? I, I, know. I mean, and Joe Biden's an old man. I don't know that he can actually handle more than one narrative. At no, time. that I, may be right. This was short <laughs> segment. Let me let me pick up on that, and then we'll get to the Fannie Willis story, as promised. Ed Morrissey is my guest. He of HotAir.com. HotAir.com. Where to read his and his uh, team's work, and uh, he and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Ed Morrissey is our guest. He is the managing editor of HotAir.com, colleague of mine at Town Hall. Ed, just before we get to Fanny, you you had mentioned right before the break that perhaps Joe Biden can only keep one narrative. In his head, but it's an awfully ugly business. I, I got to tell you, this yeah. racism business is awful. <clears throat> I don't know if it's a tell, but I do think it said something illustrative two Fridays ago, speaking at the White House, where he had that brain freeze and a reporter had to help him out with Hamas. Remember, He's, the reporter said, "Are you talking yeah. about Hamas?" He said, "Excuse me, thank you." He was using right before he said Hamas, and you could hear it, the oddness from the reporter prompting him on this. He was talking about Hamas as our opponents. Do you remember that weird construction? Yeah, says opponent or opposition. Our opposition, our things. opponents. And the reporter goes, do you mean Hamas? Maybe, maybe had a double meaning in that question. You're talking about Hamas, our opponents? Because when he talks about them, they're our opponents. When he talks about us, fellow Americans who happen to be Republican, we're extremists. Right. That, I don't want to make too big a deal of it, but I don't want to make too small a deal of it either. No, no, I think it's I think it's worth noting, and and I think a, a number of us noted it at the time too. Is that uh, his? Yeah, he's he's entirely backwards on this. I mean, this is really very much self centered, and he's always been that way. Yep. That has nothing to do with his age. Okay. Um, he's always been a vicious demagogue, yep. and you know, you can go back to 2012's going to put y'all in chains. Yep. You know, it, that wasn't the only example of nope. that. That's just the most what he most, did to Clarence Thomas. Is, I mean, yeah, you bet, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, Fannie Willis, <laughs> she's <laughs> in trouble. She is in trouble. You know, um, yes. I, I knew she was in trouble the moment I saw her take the stand because I knew that arrogance. That arrogance just doesn't wasn't going to cut it. That is not how you do that. She did everything wrong. You want to say a word about the story that you're talking about here? So, Donnie Willis got on the stand, and remember, her the attorneys for Fulton County were arguing that she didn't have to take the stand. Right. They were fighting the subpoena so that she wouldn't have to testify in that hearing, right. and she stormed into the court right. as soon as Nathan Wade's testimony was over, insisting that she wanted to testify, yep. and they put her on the stand. Yep. And then she claimed that, oh, well, I wasn't watching any of the testimony, because <laughs> right. if, if you testify, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed yeah. to watch other witnesses right. testify, right. which doesn't I, – I think that was a lie, too. I, you'll never I, prove it, but that was a lie. She no. was she was watching or listening. Well, why else did she want to come storming in if she wasn't wa- – I mean, right. right. She was angry. Right. She was yeah. calling everybody yeah. a liar. Yeah. She was clearly, you know, um, bent out of shape about something. Yeah. So – she testifies, oh, no, our relationship started after I hired him, which, by the way, isn't much better. Um, I know. 
right, that's it, a great point. Yeah, it's, right. It's the really safe harbor is that I hired him once he became my. I mean, I, uh, I I engaged in a sexual relationship with him once I became his superior. Right. That's, right. That's I mean, the it's defensive. Uh, it's still right. a conflict of interest, yeah. and it's still a question of where the money's going. Right. And. Um, but she insisted that, the, that they were just friends and that they would sometimes talk, but not very often, and that he had never come to visit her, uh, to come to visit her, excuse me, at, um, at any place that she was living, her house right. or the um, condominium that right. she was renting in the year prior to um, hiring him. Right. So today, uh, Trump's attorneys, uh, who were also party to this disqualification motion, uh, submitted cell phone data which uh, from Nathan Wade, the, the prosecutor that she hired, which shows that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis uh, had 2,000 telephone calls in the 10 months preceding um, his hiring by Fonnie Willis, 12,000 text messages, and that the location data, uh, the geolocation data from, uh, from his cell phone shows that he was at her house at least 35 times during that period prior to being hired, including overnights. And prior, and, to, and prior to the time frame, I guess, the hiring time frame in which she said the relationship began subsequently. And also to, prior right, to right. him filing for right. his divorce, right. which he did right. within 24 hours of being hired right. by Fonnie Willis for this case. Right. And, uh, and so clearly both of them lied in this hearing, and that's a huge problem. First off, just because of the perjury. Right. Uh, that's a criminal offense, but also because if a uh, if a court uh, officer of the court, both of them are officers of the court. She's a prosecutor. He's working as a prosecutor. Um, if they lie in court, they're basically they can't become they can't be lawyers that's any longer. Correct. That's right. Uh, because okay. because you can, the law is pretty clear on this. Yeah. Is that, you know, if you if you commit perjury or suborn perjury as an attorney mm-hmm. in court, mm-hmm. um, you're likely to be disbarred if not prosecuted. And, uh, and I mean, this is an amazingly bad turn of events. And the thing that you have to ask yourself, Seth, is why didn't they just, why didn't they just withdraw and allow, allow this case to be taken someplace else? If they knew that this was going on, right. if they had this in their background, why did they, why did they Dance arrogance. with the devil for as long as they did. Er, the I same arrogance you saw. The same arrogance you saw her uh, embody and embrace when she took the stand. You know, uh, the yeah. same arrogance when she said, "He's a southern gentleman, me not so much," and wanted to, you know, wanted to go on the offensive when, in fact, uh, I mean, it, it was such an odd display, Ed. Um, and great. yeah, yeah, the hubris of thinking you can engage in a case like this against a president or ex-president of the United States of America and engage in this behavior shows an odd misunderstanding of the gravity of what you are undertaking, as if this is just some other kind of case and just some other way to go after Democrats using lawfare, I suppose, to go after, excuse me, go after Republicans, using the lawfare system, system of the law to go after Republicans. Like, this is just now what we do. This is just standard, and we're not going to be held up to any scrutiny. I, I, I guess that's, I don't have a better explanation than that. There's, I mean, it really is a level of impunity. I think that they just figured that nobody would dare, nobody would dare right. challenge them on that's this. Right. And I think part of her testimony was uh, was a way to sort of back this down, and not just the testimony. She had been at the Ebenezer Church that's right. uh, over Martin Luther King Day um, uh, weekend, right. 
talking about how um, the critics were racist, yep. that they were trying to take a black woman down. Right. Um, and, I mean, this is even before all this She compared herself, coming. it was such a weird sermon, I read it, it was fascinating to me. She compared herself to the shepherd and the one wandering sheep at the same time. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, was, was, it was it was, it was very, odd, again, yeah. arrogant. And, uh, um, but, but then just, during her court testimony, she kept saying, well, as a black woman, right. I'm a, you know, as a black right. woman, I, as a black woman, I'm not going to emasculate a black man. Yep. It was odd, right? Yep. It was odd because it was just not relevant. It's the use and, of a, yeah, it's the use of a race. Yeah, go ahead. It was, it was chin music, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. If you guys keep pressing me on this, I'm going to call you racist. Yep. And, and I'm going to have everybody else around me call you racist. Yep. I'm warning you. This is what's this is what's coming. Um, I don't know how many allies she's going to have after the cell phone data thing hits. I don't know what their answer is going to be. They still have to supply an answer. Well, to, I uh, wonder. You know, I, let me take a break and just finish the hour with you. It's a very short sure. segment. You got three more minutes in you. Um, after I the, do. Okay, great, Ed. Because it's a very interesting thing. I think there can still be a perhaps racial defense that they will raise, and we'll explore that as we close off the hour when we come right back with more from Ed Morrissey. Ed Morrissey has been our guest, is uh, continuing as we close out the hour here with him. He is the managing editor at Hot Air, hotair.com. Ed, the Fonnie Willis uh, case, um, you know, it's going, you, you would questioned, you know, what will be the defense once these cell phone records become, uh, what, more validated, I suppose, uh, or more taken judicial notice of. Um, And I think they will still play the race card. I mean, she she was obviously guilty when she spoke at the Baptist church, and everyone knew it, and she played the race card. She played it during her testimony um, about a week or so ago when she was in Fulton County Court on the witness stand. And the New York Times was playing a little bit of cover. I don't know if you saw the story in the New York Times uh, that the the accusations against Fannie Willis headline was something like accusations against Fannie Willis. No surprise to black professional women in Georgia. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they should be a surprise because this isn't behavior that should be countenanced, sanctioned, or common. And it has nothing to do with race. It has so little to do with race that Fannie Willis, Fannie Willis got elected in a county that is 50-50, uh, 50-50 white-black. I mean, that's not a racial—that's, I mean, this isn't—Fulton County— they're acting as if Fulton County, Georgia is 1950, not 2024. Right. Anyway, yes. any other thoughts you have are welcome. No, no, I think you're right about that. I mean, the idea that this is somehow, I mean, first off, you're, when, you, when you file this kind of a case, you're doing it for lots of reasons. Yep. First off, because hopefully you think it's a just case, although I have my doubts about that. Right. But also, you know that you're, you're going to get an awful lot of attention. Yeah. And so, therefore, it behooves you to be more careful, yep. not less so, when you're dealing with this. And the, I mean, just the, again, the impunity and the arrogance and really the stupidity mm-hmm. of hiring your boyfriend, mm-hmm. <laughs> who you're having a torrid affair with, mm-hmm. for a position that he's clearly not qualified mm-hmm. for. The man has never prosecuted a felony case, let alone a RICO case. Right, right. Um, he's clearly not qualified for this. There, there are probably tens of thousands of attorneys in Georgia, and I would, get, I would guarantee at least 100 of them or more are more qualified to prosecute this 
and were, would have been available uh, the Nathan way. Now, yep. supposedly she offered it to a couple of other attorneys, and they turned her down. But that probably speaks to the case itself, which is, to be kind, a novel uh, application of Georgia's RICO statutes. Yep. And without Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade pushing this, I suspect it's going to fall apart, and that's part of what the issue is here, why they're, so. they're trying so hard to stick with it. Yeah, I suspect. Well, Ed, thanks for being with us on a Friday afternoon, and uh, I suppose you and I will catch up more on Monday, but uh, have a great so. weekend. You do the same. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you bet. God bless and Godspeed. This was fun. Uh, I am Seth Leibson, and who's coming? Oh, Pete Peterson. We have a lot to talk to Pete about coming right up. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.